You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. Climate Champions is back, and George and I continue our conversations with leading practitioners who are transforming architectural practice in response to the climate emergency. It's not beyond the remit of anybody to be a sustainability champion or a director of sustainability. You know, in Archetype, we don't have a director of sustainability because we say, well, actually, we're all sustainable architects. Like, we'd probably start causing a bit of upset if we said, oh, that person over there, they're going to be the director of sustainability. You know, we'd probably cause uh, a mass walkout because everyone would be so appalled. Today, our guest is Anne-Marie Fallon, an Associate Director at Archetype and this year's AJ100 Sustainability Champion. We are especially delighted to be recording with Anne-Marie today because she's already on maternity leave and is not due back at Archetype until August 2024. Anne-Marie qualified as an architect in Ireland, did her master's in Cardiff and joined Archetype in 2016. In 2020, she co-founded Archetype's Edinburgh office which is now responsible for more than 50% of the practice's fee income. Anne-Marie, thank you for coming on the podcast. As I was preparing this episode, I spotted your LinkedIn post announcing your AJ Sustainability Champion win with 94 comments and 440 likes. I guess quite a few people agree with us. You have motivated and inspired many people across the industry. We're delighted to squeeze in this conversation today. Here's my first question. Since 2019, there has been an explosion of awareness about the climate crisis across the profession. Where do you think we are now? I graduated from my part two and my part three 15, 18 years ago now. And I really felt that there would be such a real progression and sense of kind of ambition um, in delivery uh, over the last decade or so. There's been really innovative projects and and, and really exciting initiatives, but at scale, we really haven't seen the progression that I I really felt that we we would have. We're seeing pockets of hope, I think, in that regard in relation to local authorities and in the public sector in particular, and, and certain informed clients in the private sector that really are driving change. And we're starting to see that building physics led architecture can evolve into a set of beautiful buildings uh, that perform. So I worked uh, for a couple of years in Glasgow a while ago in Scotland, as well as different regulatory frameworks with building warrants and such like. There's also quite a separate architectural scene. Uh, So what are your thoughts on practice in Scotland? My impression, I suppose, was similar to uh, our managing director at the time when we were considering opening a Scottish studio we felt there was a lack of practices really interested in sustainability. And through various initiatives like the outcomes-based funding um, being led by Scottish Government for education buildings and the evolving housing legislation in Scotland where they're now looking at a Passive House equivalent bill, 
we felt that there was an opportunity to really come and develop that sustainability theme in Scotland uh, ourselves, obviously, initially, but the whole industry has come along with us. Um, and, and there's some great practices out there now, really ambitious projects and education campus projects across Scotland. So I feel the quality of practice in Scotland and the awareness of knowing where the industry is going is, is I feel, is slightly ahead of the rest of the UK. And, and there's a really close-knit network of practices in Scotland, which is very different to my experience in Ireland or uh, the rest of the UK. There's a, a sense of sharing information and sharing kind of experiences um, that I find actually really unique to Scotland. And I think overall that's allowed an acceleration of shared knowledge and appetite for these ambitious buildings and a lot more support for buildings that perform. I know that Archetype has been advocating passive house for so long and, you know, that the performance space the fact that you have to deliver the performance and monitor it is such a key factor in designing and detailing buildings that are actually going to work and do what they say they're going to do. But there are some criticisms of Passive House in terms of not necessarily looking at whole life issues in quite as much depth. What's your response to that? We're, we're suddenly seeing an uptake in how much you know, upfront carbon and the rest of the boundaries of whole life emissions are now starting to affect buildings. But our literacy as an industry is still very poor. And I think our communication around um, what whole life emissions really is, 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 is very much in its infancy. There's two paths happening. We're driving down operational demand which is really important for the carbon burp that's happening now, but also longer term, we, we need to be looking at materials, the supply chain, the lack of transparency, the fact that we're relying on these certificates that are still very ambiguous. For example, the steel industry in the UK, you know, the claims around how they are decarbonising. When you look at the amount of furnaces, for example, that are electrically fired in the UK and the, the investment that those manufacturers have to go in to do that, there's very little. But equally, there's great potential in that industry to use percentages of recycled steel and actually decarbonise very quickly if the incentives were there. So, yes, Passive House doesn't deal with some of those macro issues. It really is just what it says in the tin. It's looking at operational energy. If you think of two approaches of uh, building sustainability, let's call one a a bottom-up approach where expert practitioners like Archetype look to minimise the negative impacts and maximise the positive impacts of a project. And then there's also a, a sort of top-down approach. For example, project funders' ESG goals means that there are strings attached to finance so that a new office building might have to meet a particular framework to be or, or be net zero. How do you see this playing out in Scotland? And is this different to your experience in London? I mean, I think absolutely there's the bottom-up and the top-down approach. And within those approaches, I think there's two challenges. There's the design education challenge and then there's the actual delivery challenge. You know, what is actually happening? And in reference to Scotland, I mean, I think setting targets and being brave and really disrupting the apple cart, which is what happened in Scotland, particularly just in the public sector education side over the last few years, uh, has has really been a catalyst for change. And and, and you're absolutely right. I think it, it, it takes the top-down and the bottom-up approach. Sometimes the, the bottom-up approach can lead to very positive top-down decision-making. We took several people um, from local authorities and Scottish government around some of our schools down in London and Wolverhampton, met with the users, provided post-occupancy data to them, looked at construction costs with them as well. And ultimately, the bottom-up approach informed some of the policy drivers then to set a new energy metric. Uh, to use an analogy by Stephen Long in, in the Scottish Futures Trust, you know, if you want your children to tidy their room, 
do you give them all the money on the Sunday night and say, right, you have to keep your room tidy till next Saturday? Do you drip feed them the money every day or do you just pay them at the end of the week? And ultimately what public sector funding and even what the hedge fund investors do in the private sector is that we give all this capital away up front with no consequences to the capital if the building doesn't perform as we require. So whether that's from an indoor health point of view, an aesthetic point of view, if you want to just look at it from that level or or from a kind of thermal performance or climate emergency point of view, that we kind of give this money away and, and we don't have any accountability after that. And if we can change that financial model, both on the private and public sector side, that would be a real catalyst for change. We need to arm ourselves with the information. We can see that architecture students are already doing that um, and, and make sure that we're kind of equipped from the bottom up. The industry in Scotland and seeing the growing awareness and the growing appetite and, and the amount of people that have been trained and, and the younger architects that I see, and particularly female architects, actually really ambitiously getting their getting themselves stuck into projects and, and really getting interested and excited about energy has been, you know, really, really great. And that's been very that's been coupled very well with the policymakers encouraging from the top down. And if we can be a set of experienced consultants to be able to deliver that easily, well then that's that can then become the norm, but it's still the exception. Well, yeah. So, so this, this the, the the energy metric you were talking about for schools that's that's linked linked to funding. I, I suppose that's a kind of opportunity for that to for that to play out. Yeah, Archetype has quite long standing experience in in the school sector, and you're working on quite a few school projects in in Scotland. Does that does that relate to this new framework that you've helped develop? Yeah. So I think at the moment there's about thirty schools in Scotland being delivered to the passive house standard. And about 20% of that is through Archetype at the moment, with a growing number being adopted by, by other consultants and, and local authorities. And, and the framework that I'm speaking about, I suppose, it's the Learning Estate Investment Programme that uh, Scottish Government run via the Scottish Futures Trust. And they, back in 2019, initially started looking at how can we ensure we're delivering better value for money for the taxpayer. And part of their outcomes-based funding is a requirement that the building hits a series of, initially it was one single figure, which was a 67 kilowatt hour per meter squared per year. Um, and with pressure from the industry and, and the acknowledgement of the significant change that setting such a low target would have, they introduced a series of bandings. So you you achieve a certain banding or A-graded banding to achieve 100% of your funding over the, a 25-year period of the building. So like the, the child's being encouraged to clean their room, they're encouraged to keep the building performing over a 25-year period for the local authority to get that funding released back to them. So they, they pay for the building up front and the funding is then released to them on an outcomes basis over the 25 years. And as part of that funding requirement, there's a post-occupancy evaluation period as well. And there's regular rolling operational energy reporting. And I, and I think it was just, it, it was so aspirational to, to set something like that. We've just finished the very first project, Riverside Primary School. And there's a couple of other schools being completed this year. And really, it'll be two more years before we see the performance data coming out of those schools. But it's 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 really exciting to be already at that point and those projects then being used for the next wave of funding. And interestingly, the next wave of funding is including upfront carbon targets as well. So they've they've expanded them, which I think is really, you know, really brave and admirable. I, I just wanted to clarify for any listeners who may not be familiar that upfront carbon is the same as embodied embodied carbon. Yes. 
Yes, yeah. yes. Um, now, you've also recently led on developing a very exciting net zero methodology for public buildings in Edinburgh, for the Edinburgh estate, with many different building typologies. Tell us about that. So, yeah, I, I, that's uh, been about two and a half years in the making now and, and really started as an idea led by um, City of Edinburgh Council, where they had already made it policy that all of their new schools were going to be built to the Passive House standard. And their next, the next problem they identified really was the existing uh, building estate uh, and the fact that, um, you know, we're working in a heritage city. They were concerned about their estate, the energy use intensity of their uh, learning and office estate of about 300 buildings. And they had also set a target to be operationally net zero by 2030. And the study essentially proved what a challenge to actually reach that target, what a challenge it was going to be. So we did a, a deep dive assessment of a series of existing schools of various uh, typologies, eras, and explored a, a blended methodology on them. So taking reference from past 2038 um, from, and also taking reference from the Passive House Enerfit retrofit methodology and then finally just re reframing what you might do as feasibility for existing buildings because this 12 building study is now developed into a study of 30 buildings across seven local authorities in Scotland and we're really hoping that that can be something that's openly shared and we're uh, currently pitching to, to Scottish government on that basis. What we found was about reframing feasibility for existing buildings was that really to do it properly establishing what the air permeability is, consulting with the users, looking at the future capital planning for that building, especially post-COVID, you know, are these buildings that are only 10% occupied as offices going to be reframed or redeveloped as school buildings or are Edinburgh going to just use them for offices for the next 10 years and therefore their associated energy use is quite low in comparison to some of the other heavily trafficked buildings. So the reframing of the feasibility essentially became how do we help clients make decisions about large estates in, in terms of strategic asset decision making? Because sometimes the building that's the most energy intensive might not be the most obvious one to you uh, when you just do a high level screening of an estate. We looked at a series of construction and intervention measures for the buildings. We, 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 we coined it into an Enerfit informed retrofit plan. So similar to the past 2038, you know, let's have a whole building plan, but let it let it be informed by an Enerfit methodology or passive house methodology. We're actually getting benchmarkable performance, looking at energy modeling that actually matched a series of annual bills for energy over a period of time, really understanding the building use and really feeding all of this into a series of outcome measures that were costed. So we've had four scenarios for each building in terms of do nothing, you know, don't decarbonize, sit on the building. This is what your profile will look like. Just decarbonize, so just swap out the heat pumps. And what we found was really interesting. And, you know, this sounds maybe logical now, but two and a half years ago, we weren't really aware of this, is that if we just substitute the gas boiler for a heat pump in some of these larger schools, we're, we're going to take up, 25% of the play areas or, or teaching and learning spaces that are outside. We're going to have to double the amount of radiators in the, in the rooms. We're going to lose learning and teaching space. We also actually looked at M&E and services designs because as far as I'm concerned, we can't really design a retrofit strategy for an existing building without having a really deep collaborative involvement of the, of the services designers as well. 
so we, we, we've developed a lot of data uh, on, on, on these buildings and three out of those 12 in Edinburgh are instructed as pilot projects that are now informing the net zero public sector building standard in Scotland and they're, they're coming addendum for existing buildings where they're also hoping to set an operational energy target but also allow the decarbonisation benefit of emissions towards 2050. It's been probably my most enjoyable piece of work as well as uh, delivering on, on one of the first Passive House primary schools in Scotland, um, purely just from a the, the extent of the problem and knowing that retrofit really is something that we're all grappling with. It's not just about 2030 or 2050, it's actually what's happening in the community, how are people using the building, can there be a consolidation of use of that building where we can actually intensify its use in a positive way. And, you know, I think for every job in renewable energy that's created, you could create 70 in retrofit. And, you know, the, the kind of economic uh, uptake, the economic kind of recognition of that just isn't in our political radar at the moment. We'd rather talk about carbon capture as a way of trying to excuse the fact we're not doing enough on the ground in the community for net zero. And yes, retrofit's a massive part of that. You've touched on this before, but the Scottish government has announced that all new homes will be built to a Scottish equivalent of Passive House by 2035. That's quite a kind of step change from traditional build quality. So, yeah, what, what do you think about this and the, and the challenges to achieving it? Yes, I think it's another upset of the apple cart in the industry for sure. But I think a lot of the groundwork or the awareness raising between suppliers, contractors and consultants has been happening over the last few years in relation to quality. It's interesting that I think people look at the Passive House standard as, you know, why should we adopt a standard that belongs to a German institute? That's not being very patriotic or why aren't we looking at, you know, developing SAP, etc. And I suppose we forget that ultimately SAP and SBEM and those softwares are owned in a sense, by the UK government, they've been franchised out to be developed to the private sector. So that's one thing I think there might be a little bit of caution where we want to create our own equivalent in Scotland. In a sense, building standards, the Passive Institute and Scottish government have had conversations about this and, and the kind of level of acceptability is that building physics is the same anywhere in the world. So overall, I think it's a really positive step and it's an appropriate step in an area where, you know, housing's repeatable. I'd really hope that, that Wales and England could follow suit. I, I want to come back to materials for a minute. Um, materials are really at the top of my mind at the moment because I've just submitted a manuscript for a, a book on the environmental footprint of materials to RIBA Publishing. How are material choices considered in Archetype's design process? We all know about the Enterprise Centre at UEA, which was particularly pioneering with a very ambitious client. But what about the typical archetype project? How how does that work? So from the very first principles, we always try to start with timber frame. Regardless of scale, we, we'll always want to explore timber frame and, and mass, you know, CLT approaches to using timber as well. And even though, yes, as you look at the full carbon picture, there can be arguments for and against stage C uh, end of life for timber, you are looking at immediate emissions being much lower for that development of build. Some of our buildings more recently have been hybrid, so concrete frame with timber frame infill as kind of compensation for the concrete if we can't get to the GGBS level that we were, we were looking for for various reasons. 
and we have I would say reluctantly uh, walked into the steel frame and hybrid steel world as well driven really by not really driven by us <laughs> um, but driven by supply chain pressures and ultimately with the cost volatility at the moment projects have been pitched to be a lot more economically viable uh, as a steel frame project uh, um, when actually in reality the per tonne cost of steel for example since 2020 has gone up 80 percent cost has driven some of those more difficult decisions and I think I think any material can probably be given a chance in terms of a positive whole life carbon emission narrative but actually proving where that material comes from and trying to have a really clear supply chain trail on where those materials come from is is you know I've been developing a paper for the past phase trust that should be released hopefully soon to do with steel frame and high performance buildings you know how to design a steel frame past phase building and through that process we had a peer review with the steel construction institute and, and even they are aware of how lacking in transparency that the steel industry is around kind of decarbonized steel and the really true agenda going on there with uh, how much percentage recycling is in steel like there is really no transparency so i think yeah our our, our approach still is quite elemental and kind of comes back to the ethos of what our buildings were in terms of its community-led approach you know several decades ago and even when it comes to our Harris Academy building in Sutton, right beside the Bedside Development, the secondary school, first pass phase secondary school in the UK, it's designed for deconstruction. That what that was its low carbon or whole life carbon approach, and it was a very tricky site. So there was you know forty percent of the building's construction is in situ concrete, which really did weigh quite poorly on the whole life carbon. Um, content of that building even though it's still quite low but what we found was actually through the procurement at stage five the designing for disassembly of clt is a real challenge because of how the fixings and bolts go together and actually there's a lot more wastage and that there was a lot more predicted down cycling of the material rather than reuse which has a, a stage c impact on the overall whole life carbon so even a building with its best endeavors to be designed for a particular way forward some of the technology or some of the mechanisms from insurance or from compliance or, or restrictions on materials point of views simply doesn't exist yet. And so we're designing buildings that have these great aspirations and, and you know, maybe we get 70% of the way there. I'm kind of aware that the rest of the industry is, is also just catching up on these because they're just learning about what whole life carbon is in the first place. And Charlie Luxton's done some good research on this on his own architecture studio, actually catching all the receipts really trying to track where materials come from you know beyond the epds it's it's an enormous challenge and, and no one is doing that in the industries i can tell you that at the moment you know no contractor is 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 validating each shred of screw and each bit of board he's using in a building to really validate that rings very true with with where we've gotten to so far but you know the encouraging thing is if you look back 10 years where we are and where we are now absolutely um, things are changing you yourself have done a tremendous amount of on-site supervision of projects and as part of that i believe you've developed toolbox talks which are now used on all archetype projects so tell us about these and are they in the public domain so that other practices can use them what's the status of that over the evolution of archetype there's there's always been cottage kind of presentations our, our colleagues have helped on site in a very kind of iterative ad hoc way and, and over the last couple of years as the projects have scaled up we've tried to standardize what that information is and really highlight so that 
I mean, I suppose essentially the contractor is protected in his supply chain about what quality really is and what standard they're looking for on projects. So we've standardised it and shared it across projects and project teams. There's quite a kind of a predictable formula, even with the different types of construction buildups, the kind of underlying concepts of, yeah, building with no gaps, looking for quality on site. And, and, you know, a lot of it's just about keeping sites neat, clean, tidy, using the right materials. Ultimately, yes, the toolbox talks, I'd be really keen that we, we kind of share them as open source material through through a vehicle like the Vast Trust, but also that we start sharing those lessons maybe more iteratively through Reba masterclasses or, or, or maybe with, with the AJ as well, just how those lessons learned can be disseminated in the industry. Nobody um, wants to share when things go wrong. <laughs> yes, yeah. If you can anonymize when when things go wrong for the benefit of, of everybody, that would be great. And, you know, we, we've had lessons learned as well on, on our very first Passive House schools where one or two of the first generation schools, we overglazed some of the smaller group teaching rooms. Or, you know, there, there wasn't enough ventilation flow from the MVHR design in those rooms and, and teachers then maybe not understanding how you can open a window at different times of the year in a passive house building. You don't have to shut, you know, keep them closed. And so even our own lessons learned, trying to trying to disseminate them, sharing lessons learned, trying to be honest without feeling exposed in those lessons learned and, and not just with architecture consultants but with you know services engineers structural engineers but of course you know we're very siloed as an industry we we don't really let those kind of conversations happen you've said that your proudest moment was in helping to deliver scotland's most airtight non-domestic building riverside primary school in perth could you tell us about that project and, and what made it possible to achieve that so Riverside Primary School is a single school on a site that's replacing two buildings within Perth for Perth and Kinross Council. Um, it just finished earlier this year and has, has been occupied since June. It was part of the outcomes-based government funding that we spoke about earlier. And so we had a contractor on board from the very beginning. And the partnering collaboration of that process with the client very closely aligned as well was was really enriching really as a as a project i think to be honest actually in the last few weeks i think we've been beaten uh, on the most airtight building in scotland and i think there's a, a an extension to a school in edinburgh now by another practice and a clt building at that that's now down at a, a lower value which is brilliant i i love to see records beaten we did have an evolution of the building from clt to steel frame uh, as the design progressed and 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 we locked in the kind of financial budget for that project um, of around 21 million just before the Ukraine crisis and other kind of economic uncertainty came across the economy. Yeah, it was just a very proud period where there was almost like a family or community aspect to delivering the project between the client, the contractor and the consultants. The Passface designer, the Passface champion, for example, we would jump on a Teams call, we'd walk around site and get some really quick feedback almost on a daily basis, depending on the sequence in the works. We engaged quite early with the supply chain and brought their awareness up to date about what we wanted. You know, there really was, and I genuinely am lying saying this, but there really was no resistance from anybody really trying to deliver this. And we're now working with the same services engineer on another school now. You can really see the kind of the awareness and the knowledge has changed because I think the service engineer probably hated me on the, on the project for a couple of months because I have an unhealthy interest in services because they're very important to, to building design as well. 
but yeah I mean I think it, it sounds funny now to be happy that 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 record for the most airtight building has has been beaten but it's 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 really brilliant that it has and it's been with a, a completely different architecture practice with a completely different design team different client and it just shows the the the, the continued success of these buildings being piloted in Scotland you've you've touched on on uh, different uh, ideas of zero carbon so if we need if we need a zero carbon society but each individual project is going to hit net zero that often means offsetting to deal with embodied impacts but there's only so much genuine opportunity to draw down carbon and there's been a lot of con- uh, controversy about how a lot of the commercially available offsets are kind of a scam so What's your view of, of, of this sort of building by building approach to getting to net zero? The whole term net zero has almost lost its meaning. I mean, ultimately, it hasn't lost its meaning. It's a very strong political driver. It's a post-COVID growth anchor. So the, the consciousness raising of it as a term is excellent. What you're getting at there is delivering net zero in isolation is a ridiculous task, I would argue. And in our estate study across the 30 buildings in Scotland has kind of demonstrated that, that you know, there's, there's a nuance to how much you can retrofit and what's sensible or how much benefit can come from just decarbonisation alone. And there's a, a blended approach there between demand reduction and looking at cleaner emissions. And the estate-wide view, I think, absolutely has to be taken. So, you know, why we aren't taking the bull by the horns and retrofitting, you know, all the major hospitals in terms of energy use intensity, you know, looking at efficiencies and controls and behaviour in these buildings, because it isn't just all about radically altering the material state of existing architecture it's it's a more nuanced holistic approach to how those buildings really can achieve operational net zero targets and i think there's the energy use intensity analysis across different estates and you know i know the nhs have been doing work on this and on other big local authority bodies but if if we can somehow target the bigger spend on the more critical infrastructure that's using more energy use intensity that's more impactful longer term. I'm kind of baffled as to how some of that decision making isn't driving how we are approaching the net zero concept at kind of policy level. But our current solutions is, you know, giant carbon capture concepts and let's release a lot more gas and oil licenses in Scotland. It kind of feels like a lot of that stuff is is a kind of... uh... It's, it's a greenwash. Kind of pretend. It's just to pretend yeah. that we can continue to continue emitting because we can absorb it later, and it's just a kind of sham. We're kind of sitting around waiting on technology as a solution, and actually, just you know, when it comes to it, behaviour change, and actually looking at a blended approach to retrofit. Where you know, I think is it Max Fordham's house in London that's the only verified net zero in operation building in the UK. It is the only verified one according to the the kind of UK Green Building Council's definitions. So we're we're really a long way off, and we do a lot of talking about it. I think in terms of how we're accounting for carbon emissions. And what really shocked me recently was actually a BBC News article where a PV recycling facility, the first of its kind in the world, was opening in Grenoble in France in June. Because there's been a deluge of PVs reaching the end of their life over the you know, 25, 30 years, is coming up on time now from the very first generation PVs. And the fact that we hadn't developed an industry to deal with that as a product at the end of its life that it was just ending up in landfill it was really shocking to me so uh, i agree you know that the, the offsetting agenda we need to be very very careful of um in terms of what does that mean in the long view 
rather than just, oh, I'm net zero now, I've put a load of PV in the field beside my village. We're operating in net zero, we've t- ticked all the boxes for government, but actually, what's going to happen, that material in 30 years' time? And actually, is it better to retrofit in the fabric to last 100 years than just stick PV panels that don't really have an end-of-life narrative yet globally, apart from one recycling plant? No one takes the long-term view. Governments don't even take the long-term view. They're in and, in and out every four or five years. We've had plenty of incentives being reported more and more in the media recently about how weather is changing. What could happen was by the mid-2030s, we have a catastrophic series of climate events in the UK that actually allow or force a COBRA-type response to the climate emergency, like we had with COVID. So many people are studying the climate emergency, what net zero really means, there's so many innovative minds out there that if we almost had a COVID response to the climate emergency, which which will happen in the next decade, you know, we're going to have excess deaths, we're going to have mass flooding, we're going to have huge infrastructural issues. So in, in terms of coming back to architects and, and kind of where the profession is at the moment, you, you may know that until, I think it was 2019, the AJ100 Sustainability Award was an award to the most sustainable practice rather than to a champion. And Architect actually won it three times because Architect was just so far ahead of the profession in general. And I remember both the jury and my colleagues at the AJ saying, we can't give it to them again. Um, So do you think others are catching up? Is this kind of upskilling that everyone is talking about? I think there's definitely a growing awareness and, you know, there's a great group and community of of heads of sustainability in in London, for example, across lots of practices that simply didn't exist, you know, a decade ago, that 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 title, that awareness wasn't there. And and as architects, we're we're great creative mindsets. You know, we have great creative mindsets. We're great thinkers. We're great innovators. And it's not beyond the remit of anybody to be a sustainability champion or a director of sustainability. You know, an archetype, we don't have a director of sustainability because we say, well, actually, we're all sustainable architects. Like, we'd probably start causing a bit of upset if we said, oh, that person over there, they're going to be the director of sustainability. You know, we'd probably cause uh, a mass walkout because everyone would be so appalled. <laughs> I know you've been involved in developing an online Passive House course, which is now, is it for this autumn this is still the plan. All our IBA accredited part one courses will will have access to this online course. So how did that come about? And uh, what is it exactly? So there's been a, a number of different bodies involved in getting this off the ground. So um, uh, first of all, the Passive House Trust, Sarah Lewis, uh, has been really instrumental in getting the conversation started with REBA. This is the intention to release a national module on essentially building physics and passive house uh, for all undergraduate students to, to add to their curriculum in uh, REBA accredited courses from this September, which is just phenomenal because the teaching I do in Bath University and I also do external examining in Robert Gordon and a couple of other universities is that there's a huge anxiety and huge appetite amongst part one students in particular where they want their curriculum to respond to this. So this will be an optional course. No, it's going to be delivered for all students. How it's going to wrap into different curriculums and different university credit modules, etc., I'm not 100% sure. But it's, it's something that will be rolled out for all students. 
it's really fantastic that this has been brought into undergraduate degrees now. Um, I didn't really learn any uh, building physics at all until I did my passive house course. Okay, so one last question. Um, so you've described yourself as being involved in the deep end of sustainability since the outset of your career in Ireland. So you never really learned the business as usual way of working. And you have a long view on the pace of change and you know what's happening in terms of moving towards more sustainable ways of working. Where do you think we'll be in a decade and how long will it take to reach net zero? The two challenges are the design education and then the in the trenches delivery. Trying to create and cultivate informed clients, whether that's at policy level or public or private sector, regional level, um, climate conscious clients and, and uh, an advocacy level type of engagement to, to doing that is what, what we need in the next decade. So whether you're the consultant or whether you're the policymaker, we need to be able to kind of think out of the box and try and set braver targets. We've touched on training and upskilling being an absolute requirement as well. There's a lot of free learning out there and there's a lot of there's a lot of free information that we from very valid sources that we can obtain. And that wasn't and true five years ago. I think absolutely didn't know not. where to go. So that is no. a big change. You don't have to leave your computer to be able to get immersed in kind of building technology and kind of learning about performance and quality now. I'd love on the delivery side if like we had a process around building control or display energy certificates where we actually start documenting what our actual performance of our building stock is at a kind of grander scale to be able to then best advise more strategic retrofit ambition that we should be setting ourselves kind of as a, as a country. How long will it take to reach net zero? I think in a decade, we know the grid's going to be cleaner. We'll have cleaner emissions. We might have had four governments uh, by then um, and differing policies and agendas. You know, we're in an era of energy politics where we're trying to find our path as professionals through that and respond in the best way we can locally. And I suppose lastly, just, you know, taking responsibility ourselves as individuals, trying to, to, to kind of ride those small waves of change that we are seeing um, and, and make them bigger waves. I'm really passionate about the energy that I see in architecture students and the, and the next generation. But, you know, hopefully we don't have to wait for them to come through. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Is there anything crucial that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with our listeners? I suppose, yeah, I mean, only that, you know, hopefully I could be an example to uh, the women in the construction industry and better diversity in the construction industry as well. And I, I would encourage women to really push that ambition and that ambitious side of themselves for the next decade as well and I think uh, women in leadership positions have a real potential to make change happen so I'm always uh, you know any I'm really happy for anybody to, to reach out to me but particularly uh, mentoring um, younger female architects to, to, to be brave and, and, and make the change happen. Thank you thank you very much. Our next climate champion will be Montreal-based architect and systems thinking practitioner Scott Francisco, founder of the Pilot Projects Design Collective and the Global Cities for Forests Network. Scott is one of the most inspirational people I've met recently, so do join us in two weeks to hear from Scott.
You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks.